Hi, I'm Ed Whittingham, and you're listening to Energy vs. Climate, the show where my co-host David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I debate today's climate and energy challenges, highlighting the Canadian context. We've talked a lot about electricity inner ties and long-distance transmission on EBC, but without going deep into the topic, today's show does just that. Long-distance and inter-regional transmission lines can connect generation across North America, bringing low-cost and low-carbon electricity to users everywhere, a fact not lost on policymakers. In the U.S., the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, has taken action to speed up interconnection for new generators. And here in Canada, the federal government made a big bet on electrification in its 2023 budget. Yet despite these efforts, there's been limited progress to date in building out interties across North America, and a big gap remains. To talk about this challenge, we brought on entrepreneur and infrastructure developer Michael Skelly. Skelly, as he's known in the biz, has first-hand experience in tackling big electricity challenges, having developed some of the first wind farms across the U.S. That was back when many questioned the viability of the industry. Now he's founder and CEO of Grid United, an early-stage transmission development company. Skelly was previously the founder and president of Clean Line Energy, and prior to that, he led the growth of Horizon Wind Energy, now part of EDP Renewables, one of the largest renewable energy companies in the world. Skelly provided us with a great voice from the real world. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome, Skelly. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. You've uh, been in renewable electricity and transmission development for, I think, 30 years now. So maybe you can start by just telling us a bit about your experience in the early days of wind development with Horizon in the late 90s. And, you know, what, what you were in Texas and kind of what enabled the market in Texas back in those days. Yeah. So what, what happened in Texas, this was in 1999, there's Senate Bill 7, when George W. Bush was governor of Texas. He signed into law, basically electricity deregulation. And part of the negotiation that brought about those, those reforms well, there was obviously lots of pieces to it, but one of them was a renewable portfolio standard. And it basically said that Texas would get like, I can't remember, like 3% of its power from renewable sources. And that, to everybody's surprise, so that, that led utilities to do some RFPs. And then after they did the RFPs, then they sort of like, wow, this is really cheap power. Let's do more of that. And the, the combination of pretty open interconnect policies to make it easy to connect to the grid and good resources, a relaxed permitting regime led to a lot of projects in the early 2000s. Then in the sort of 03 to 010 time frame, we had a lot of volatility on the natural gas side. And so uh, wind was episodically pretty valuable compared to other sources of energy. And so that was another sort of big boost in the system. And then finally, in Texas, in the mid-2000s, as more and more projects got built, there was more and more congestion on the grid. So when Governor Perry, uh, who succeeded Bush, became governor, he introduced or brought to, brought about something called the Competitive Renewable Energy Zones, or CRES. And that was a state-driven Transmission expansion 
out into windy parts of the state to enable us to tap those resources. So that led to like another big wave of development beginning the early, you know, sort of the early 2010s. So that has led to Texas being, you know, I'm giving you a longer answer than you may have bargained for here, but, you know, one of the leaders in the in the country in terms of, of wind development in the U.S. But it was all those factors kind of working together. And, and just to summarize those factors, you had visionary governors like Governor Perry and called Bush the Younger at the time, the RPS. And But you mentioned a relaxed permitting regime as if that were a temporal thing and not the regime that's in place right now. Is that is that true? That's correct. It's pretty straightforward to build solar, wind, batteries, et cetera, in Texas. And the way our interconnection queue works is you just show up and connect and then you're in the market. Now, if you can't, if your if your power can't move, that shows up at a really low price. So people have an incentive to think about where they're going to connect. But yeah, it's a, it's a pretty pretty open market. Got you. So, so Lynn, let's maybe talk about what we're going to speak more of today, and that's about grids and transmission capacity. Could you describe for us what is the nature of transmission capacity in North America broadly? These days, how fragmented? I know, I know it to be fragmented. How fragmented is it? How to what degree is it in need of upgrades? And and moreover, uh, you know, how have grids evolved over the time that that your thirty years you've been working in uh, infrastructure development? Yeah, so the grid ownership is is highly fragmented. I mean, you know, we we had this thing called the Public Utility Holding Company Act, which was a New Deal era reform, which discourage large utilities. So we have a few, uh, in fact, two of the biggest are Tennessee Valley Authority and Bonneville Power Administration, which are also New Deal era companies, state-owned companies. But generally speaking, our grid or our utilities are fairly small. That's mitigated to some extent by the fact that we have these regional transmission organizations whose job it is, is to plan the grid on a regional basis. But generally, it's Grid is the grid is quite fragmented uh, in the U.S. and in our view, that keeps us from tapping the you know the full range of resources that that we have because we really do have a lot of fantastic energy resources in the U.S. but we don't really have the infrastructure to tap them. Great, and and maybe just last question before we we'll broaden the conversation: Who is developing? transmission in North America these days? Is it primarily still the domain of the incumbent utilities? Or, you know, this is, maybe you can give us a one-line description or the two-line description of Grid United. Is it now being led by independents like like yours? Yeah. So the the most project, like, I don't know, 90% of the lines are built by incumbents, okay? And those are, you know, 230, 345, 500 kV AC lines. And again, it's, there's a bunch of reasons why incumbents build the AC lines. Uh, but the really big projects, the big sort of multi-state projects, um, of the big ones that we're seeing now, those are almost all by, done by independents. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is doing a couple of big ones, but there's a line from Wyoming to, to Vegas, which is, you know, a three or four state project developed by and Phil Anschutz, who's a ultra high wet net worth guy in Denver. There's Sunzia, which is actually backed by Pattern Energy, which is 
whose main owner is a CPPIB from your neck of the woods. And then there's a couple of projects in the Northeast that are go from one from Canada down to New York, New York City and another from upstate New York down to New York. But mo- the, the interesting thing there is uh, that these big multi-state projects were proposed by and are being developed by incumbents. And in some ways, they're, you could say they're sort of filling the gap that they, the utilities typically aren't reaching across state lines to look for resources. Or you could say they're sort of leading the charge. I think ultimately we will see incumbent participation in, in projects like these, but we haven't seen a lot of it yet. Got you. Okay. Well, let's let's take one step back and just talk about the need for interties in the first place. This, Sarah, I'd like to put this to you. We know, and and when we had Blake on the show, Blake Schaefer, and we talked about Canada's big bet on electrification. You know, studies show that electricity demand in Canada could be double that, what it is today in 2050 on a path to net zero, which means we have to grow capacity, you know, double that 2.2 or 3.4 times faster than what we've developed to date. Why, how do intertized fit into that increased demand need for increased capacity? Like what, why do we need them in the first place? Yeah. Well, let me give an example here in the U.S. So we have a one of the most important intertides is, is called the Pacific Intertide. And it goes from the Columbia River down to Los Angeles. And what happened was we built out the Bonneville system. Y'all built out the system on the Columbia River as well. And what a bunch of folks figured out in the early 60s was, hey, if we can tie this complex of dams in the Northwest and in BC to the Los Angeles, we can share reserves back and forth and we can send power north in the wintertime when peak demand hits in the Northwest. And in the summertime, when Los Angeles and the desert Southwest needs power, we can send power south. So the project was announced uh, actually by Kennedy and then finally built in the early 70s. And they had all the debates then that we have now about like who should own this? Should it be public power? Should it be you know private companies? Um, is it really needed? Et cetera, et cetera. And that line, which was originally built basically for seasonal exchanges of power between the northwest and the southwest, today it's been upgraded a few times. It's now thirty five hundred megawatts of transfer capacity. And it's kind of the one of the backbones of the Western grid. And the flow of power changes direction several times a day. Right now, it's uh, about noon in the West. So there's tons of uh, extra solar that can go up to the Northwest. You'll probably see, you'll see in the, in, you know, the spring runoffs that, that will head south. If wind kicks up too much in the Columbia River Gorge uh, this evening, and there's too much power, then that power can flow south to LA. So it's the, the 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 interesting thing about transmission is you get optionality on lots of different futures. Now I know that when when Kennedy was you know talking about the Pacific Intertide back in the early 60s, he wasn't thinking about like, well, we're gonna have all the solar power in the southwest and we can send it up up to the northwest. But the infrastructure works just as well for, you know, even has more uses to more use cases today than it did when originally. So in the context of like your question about like, okay, why is this important going forward? You see kind of the same phenomena. So 
in the U.S. You have wind fronts move across the country, and that you know it's windy in one place and not in the other. You have you know we're we're big enough as are y'all to have three or four hours time difference across the continent. That means you can move solar around. Then the other thing. Well, let me pause there and, and let you carry on. But I have another point on that topic that Sarah and I have been talking about a little bit. Sure. Well, let me let me punt it over to Sarah. Maybe you could talk about the Alberta perspective and in the context in Alberta, where you know the ASO, the Alberta Electricity System Operator, has consistently underforecast renewables on the system. And now we've got this moratorium on new renewable electricity development in Alberta. What is the role of Intertize in that that mix? Certainly, yeah, and I mean it's very similar. Or, you know, it's it's exactly the story that that Scully was just telling about being able to move power, you know, in different places when there's different amounts of demand and different supply. And of course, here in Alberta, we don't have a lot of hydro. In in BC, they do, and so that ability to you know move, uh, say, solar or wind from Alberta uh, to BC and vice versa, um, there's a pretty key key role there. Um, and Alberta is an interesting place. I mean, I would argue that Alberta is a place where interties can have potentially even more of an impact because we have even more seasonality in our low carbon uh, generation options than almost anywhere else on the in the world I feel like I'm constantly seeing the ways in which you know things are harder for us here in the in the north but um, you know some some modeling I've done with um, with a research associate uh, that's shown that you know we, we it's not so hard to get to, you know, 50, 60, even 70 percent variable renewables um, without doing much in the way of, of trading power outside the province. But getting, you know, to 90, 95, 100 percent gets really hard because of those periods where we, uh, you know, in the winter where there's not a lot of sun and not a lot of wind. And so having that ability to move power um, is quite, quite important. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, that, that was already said as well, too, about, you know, the roles of the RTOs, the ways in which our, uh, our electricity grid is very much shaped by decisions that were made, you know, I was going to say 40 years ago, I said 60 years ago now, you know, I think there's some really, in my mind, that's a, the, the, those sort of issues of who's making those decisions and how. Um, we see that starting to play out now as we're thinking about how to build out our grid in order to, say, integrate more variable renewables. Um, but I'm sure we'll come back to that topic uh, a bit later on. Sure. David, over to you, because you did some work, and I want to say 10, 12 years ago, looking at wind and connectivity around North America with increased wind generation. Yeah, I mean, let me try and do the professor thing and start at the most basic. So so if you've got different generators that are, are imperfectly correlated, the more of them you can add up in a transmission system, the less the overall variability of output. Um, so both wind and solar vary with location, but in ways that are different. Wind varies largely with the big um, way the jet stream, the, the sort of sort of mesoscale that we have moving across North America, you'd all be familiar with the kind of jet stream maps. Solar varies on a much shorter time scale with clouds. And so they have quite different kind of noise or variability spectra when you look at them. But you know the basic fact is that for both, if you integrate over more and more area, your output varies less and less. I mean, in the Buckminster Fuller extreme, if we had a global grid, which is not technically impossible, then you get 724 solar with no variability from a range of solar sites around the world. That extreme is obviously very far away. But the point is, you really do get these benefits closer. And it's not just supply. 
there's a corresponding benefit on load because load also varies. Load doesn't vary in a perfectly correlated way. There's some loads that vary. So at the end of the uh, some big football game, everybody gets up to have a beer and you can see that spike in the load and that's synchronized across the whole country, but other loads aren't. And so load diversity also helps. So people have looked at this for a long time. Yeah, me and uh, my student, Joe DeCarolis, who I'm proud of, is now actually runs the uh, Energy Information Administration. We did work in about starting around 204. I guess the publication was 206. Where, you know, for example, in that case, it turns out we were choosing to look at the cheapest way to get power to Chicago, as it happens, where I'm sitting now, back in that 06 paper. And so um, kind of the idea was we had wind power sites in Fargo and Amarillo, Texas, and Sioux City. And we used the actual cost of transmission lines between those things. And we used the actual wind power output we got from years of wind data at those sites. And then said, if an optimal system, how would it distribute its wind um, capacity around those sites? And how would how much would it pay for uh, extra uh, transmission capacity, given the real cost of wind capacity and the real cost of transmission capacity? And you know what you find is the same kind of thing that Sarah found. In fact, we had an early paper in the Electricity Journal showing this kind of thing, that it's pretty easy to get to 50%, but then it gets a lot harder. Sarah said 70. But the point is, site diversity really benefits you a lot in this pretty deep way. So a kind of basic fact here is that if one really wanted to do North America substantially more on wind and solar, you really need a, a system that both has more total transmission capacity, but you need more really long interties, including the DC interties that go between the, the synchronous AC systems, which just to remind people is East, West, Texas, and Quebec are the four AC systems in North America. And, and just quickly, what is the advantage to DC systems over AC systems when you're talking about long distance transmission? Well, so um, the whole magic of DC, you know, the why, way Westinghouse beat Edison, it, the whole magic of AC, why Westinghouse beat Edison is that it's really easy to make transformers. So inside any synchronous AC system, it's relatively straightforward to make long lines with a DC system. But, but between two AC systems, if you connect up the lines, the thing explodes. You, you can't. So you can't run an AC line between East and West or between Texas and Ontario. It would literally blow things up. Um, but you can connect them by what we by DC lines. So you can take that AC, turn it into DC, then do DC, then turn it back into AC. The biggest thing that DC does, it gets around that interconnection. But also there's uh, some economic benefits to DC over AC as you go to longer and longer distances, DC wins actually not as dramatically as people think, but it does win as you go to longer distances. Hi there, everyone. Ed here with a favor to ask. Energy versus climate is a labor of love. David, Sarah, and I don't pay ourselves for the show because we feel strongly about the public service benefit of the project. We also don't run ads or take on sponsors in order to maintain 100% editorial independence. But the show still costs money to make. What little we do bring in from donors goes directly to paying our producer to make the pod and run our website. You can help us keep Energy versus Climate on the air by making a tax-deductible donation to the show today at energyversusclimate.com slash donate. Thanks for your support. Got you. So maybe let's go back to Skelly. Why are it a did I get it wrong in the intro when I said that there's been limited process on building new transmission and interties? But if I'm right, what is impeding process progress 
Uh, and especially in this era where you've got the bipartisan infrastructure bill and you've got IRA, which we talked about in this show, the Inflation Reduction Act, which both of which give quite a lot of policy support to transmission developers and policy support in that giving them certainty over the long run. So what what's not working or flip it, what's working, but then what still is not working? Yeah. So what's not working yet in the U.S., OK, and it's probably not working so well in Canada either is the the planning processes are kind of dimensioned around old paradigms about generation and where generation would be cited. And they don't think sort of holistically or they don't think about like what's happening in an adjacent RTO. So for example, if you're in the mid-continent ISO, and not to be flippant, but they're they're forced to live in a pre-Magellan world, okay? So remember, Magellan sailed across, and he was going to go off the edge of the earth, or maybe it was Columbus. But we really, we were certain the world was round after Magellan. So anyhow, they, if you're in the mid-continent ISA or the Southwest Power, you go west, and then the earth sort of ends, electrically speaking, anyhow. And so you don't plan for what's happening, what's going on on the other side of the abyss. And similarly, uh, in the west, they don't plan what's happening to their east. Y'all have a little bit of that challenge in Canada because your, you know, your provinces run north south, and you have, you know, your east west connections typically aren't that great. But that's because of a legacy of planning the grid by by province, really. And so, what we find, and this is kind of like, I think we have some like theoreticians here on the Zoom, so maybe y'all could give properly explain this. But like, what happens is over time these networks grow. Okay, but they grow independently. And then if you sort of step back and zoom out and you look at them, there's actually a lot of really cool opportunities to connect them. We saw this recently in the US with something with the memorable initials of JTIQ, Joint Transmission Interconnection, something or other, between the Southwest Power Pool and the Bitcoin and ISO in the US. And they looked at their grid together, which they typically haven't done said, hey, what can we connect? And they found a whole bunch of projects that were not that expensive, but that would unleash lots of new interconnection possibilities. This is one of the things that is going to get funded through the through some of the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And so I have to, it seems to me, maybe one of y'all can explain this, like mathematically, if you create a bunch of networks, and I know we're on audio and you can't see my hands waving, connecting with we, with each other, but it seems like mathematically, if you build networks, that creates a possibility of lots of connections and a lower cost to really amplify the connections, the value of those connections. Is that actually a thing, Ed? I, I know I'm not supposed to ask the questions, but I got to ask. Can I jump in and say it's part of the thing, but I want to be the acronym police because while all of us know, our audience might not. So ISO is Independent System Operator. This is the the entity that doesn't own the assets, but decides, basically runs the auction of who's getting in and on the grid. And uh, Sarah also used the acronym RTO, which is Regional Transmission Organization. So let's just try and try and yeah. get this acronym out. Is, but yeah. and RTOs are similar to ISO. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. But I've got, so Scully, I just want to, one more question back to you, and then I want to come in our north-south connected grid, come back up to Canada and go to Sarah. But just to use the Canadian example, we so we've got challenges here. And if you take the province in which Sarah and I are sitting right now, and David spends a third of his time in Alberta, 
you know, it makes a lot of sense to connect over to BC, but there's a market structure difference and that's a problem. We have a deregulated market, BC does not. Plus, you uh, have different political stripes in the governments as well. You have fiefdoms, you have the lack of federal leadership to really force these provinces to the table and negotiate. So there's a great potential to have an interconnect, not just between Alberta and BC, but across different provinces. But then you get to these market structure, policy and political barriers. To what degree is that, are those barriers in the, the US as well? Well, they're, yeah, we have the same sorts of challenges. Like we have a couple of projects that are connecting markets, you know, basically market driven RTOs with regulated worlds and connecting those two is tricky. However, I think we just need to think more about some of this stuff. I mean, I guess I'm an optimistic person because I'm developing these transmission lines that take forever, but I had occasion to visit Viking Link. And uh, which is a, a project between Denmark and the UK. And we were there like a month ago. The 1500 megawatt line is the longest cable in the world, 400 miles long. And it not only does it, it, it connects and then you get this sort of phenomenon of the wind and then our UK thermal can back up the Danish grid and then go up to hydro to the, the Scandinavian hydro system and such. But those are pretty different markets. Okay. So in Denmark, the RTO is actually the regional transmission organization, the, the grid operator, is actually the regulator, believe it or not. So the, the Danish regulator also owns the transmission projects. And then on the UK side of things, you've got like a, a more sort of wide open market uh, with lots of generators and so on. Probably looks more like Alberta in some ways. So they've come up with a way to pay for this link Okay, whereby the Danes just say, we need this link, we'll pay for it. Okay. And so that the cost of the link is, or half of the cost is all, everybody in Denmark pays for it. In the UK side of things, they have this thing called the cap and floor system, where an investor puts in the money and the regulator guarantees sort of a minimum rate of return, a few percent, so they can pay their debt. And they, if they, in the exchange of power, they make more than their min- minimum return, then they get a better return, but it gets capped out at, a, I don't know, double something low double digits. So that's sort of an interesting mechanism where they found a way for one set of customers who hold certain view about how to organize markets and so on with another totally different policy paradigm and risk-taking and so on. And there's similar stories between France and the UK and so on. So I, I think it's other people have figured out how to connect to relatively autarkic markets. I just had to throw in autarkic because I'm with a bunch of economists here. So um, <laughs> um, We loved it, <laughs> even so, though I'm a physicist. <laughs> we just pretend to be economists. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry. Anyhow, but you got the joke. Um, so it feels like this is doable, but we, and there's other examples from around the world that, that are, I think are pretty relevant to, to sorting all this out. Yeah. And I'd love to, when we look at other examples around the world and what, you know, Grid United is doing itself, like with the North Plains Connector Project, I'd love to talk a little bit about who are the winners and who are the losers and the winners, you know, you'd mentioned, so the, the, the cap and floor program, I think, and clearly then a utility 
would be a winner as opposed to projects up here where you have that regulated rate of return? Like what's the real incentive for a utility to develop it or a developer, a renewable electricity developer itself, where we're all doing pretty well signing virtual PPAs and the consumers don't have a lot of voice. And sometimes the property owners and the rights holders, they don't want it. So I think part of our challenge here is that we're trying to find the right people who are actually incentivized to do this. And then governments, if they're competing and you know, there's a lot of inertia in the system to begin with, no one actually is properly incentivized to take a risk on these really big, complex, stakeholder engagement, heavy transmission projects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, you're right. I mean, transmission can be a bit of a hall of mirrors, but like a lot of pieces of infrastructure that facilitate more efficient markets, there's enough win- winners and enough winnings that you know, we ought to be able to figure out a way to sort of allocate risk and reward to to make things happen. That's sort of an ideal world, I know, but uh, we're, you know, we can dream. Yeah. Sarah, back to you and give us a little sense of bringing back Canada and some of the, the, the theory that uh, you're witness to or developing around around transmission. Sure. So, I mean, I guess I would start by by saying that I think about this transmission problem and the problems of winners and losers and, and sort of the transmission planning process really through this lens of like a sort of carbon lock-in and what are the ways in which is in particular institutions are set up that that kind of block this development. And, and Scott, you mentioned this before, but I'll just point out that there's um, a couple of recent papers, one by Ari Pesco, um, along with another one that argue that really the utility transmission kind of governance process is not designed to address the challenges that we face anymore today, right? And I would call that like a classic institutional carbon lock-in that the institutions sort of create this inertia and create this lack of planning on the other side, not just because we're sort of in a world where we don't realize there's an other side to beyond that RTO, but there is no incentive to actually interact with them. And I think that to me is behind a lot of um, kind of that inertia that we see in that you know, not even getting to the point of saying there's a lot of winning to be had, say, and certainly in the Alberta system, you know, building out a lot of low cost renewables and exporting that and balancing that with with the uh, hydro from BC, there's a lot of winning to be had there. There's certainly some losing to be had uh, by the owners of, you know, peaker plants um, in the province of Alberta, but arguably, at least in a market that's, you know, operating fairly, that that winning is, is larger and that value should be able to be shared, but that you don't actually, you know, that the power sort of in the potential winners is not located in a place that allows them to actually influence the processes that could uh, allow those transmission lines to actually get built. And so that becomes a real big barrier. How do we you know, address those barriers? That's sort of one of the fundamental reasons why, again, in the Alberta context, I think things like the federal clean electricity regulation um, are quite important in, in sort of require enforcing those conversations, right? And so there's lots been said about CRs and the and the challenges and the need to maybe, you know, tweak some of the regulations to add some flexibility. Um, but I think fundamentally, we do need something like CR, which forces the provinces in Alberta um, or sorry, the provinces such as Alberta to actually look at the opportunities uh, to develop those transmission lines and start those conversations around how are we going to figure out how to integrate the markets? Because we're not even really at the point of having those yet. And yet, mm-hmm. Sarah, we've just had a Supreme Court ruling here in Canada that's potentially emasculated the clean electricity regulation. 
I don't yeah, know that looking, that's for those totally true. Who, we'll have to come yeah. back to that, I guess, at another time. Uh, I think well, I think that well, is more about specifically what I did on that one uh, on that one regulation than than clean power overall. But sure, and, and maybe something that spans provinces that gives the feds jurisdictions. It is less emasculated. Anything that isn't crossing provincial borders now, it's going to be. I think I think the feds now are going to have a real tough time enforcing the CER with that decision. But we, as you say, we should probably have a dedicated show on it. Yeah, um, David. So on winners and losers, you know, often when it comes to long distance transmission, uh, landowners and rights holders can be losers, and that you know they're that it happens on their land. They're not direct not direct beneficiaries. They can be indirect beneficiaries if they're consumers of that electricity. But you know, of you talking before we got on with everyone of a project that sort of takes that out, that landowners and rights holders takes that completely out of the equation. Yeah. I mean, let me say generally that that if the world is actually serious about decarbonizing mostly with renewables, building long distance transmission is just fundamental. I mean, well, I guess maybe a better way to say it is either you need a lot more long distance transmission or radically cheaper energy storage. And and if you assume radically cheaper energy storage isn't coming soon, long distance transmission is what you need. And the key point is to say, we know how to do this. So to give you some example of what's out there, there's a Chinese line that is eight gigawatts and runs 2,200 kilometers, 2,200 kilometers, and it's built in 2014. Go look for all of you interested at Wikipedia at the range of HVDC lines out there, high voltage DC lines out there. It's really stunning. So we th- those are above ground cables. And those were pure economic cables that really worked. There's also uh, underwater cables where for underwater, you can't do AC for some interesting physics reasons. You can only do DC. Um, so there's the one that that uh, Scully just told us about that X, the uh, uh, Viking link, which is 600 kilometers. I'm going to stick with metric and one and a half gigawatts. But to give you a sense, there's a thing called X links, which is not built, but it's seriously discussed. It's now labeled as a major UK project. It's got a lot of important people and investment capital, but it's not a not got closure for money. Uh, but that thing is almost 4,000 kilometers, 3.6 gigawatts that would run power from Morocco to the UK, supplying about 7% of the UK's power with blended wind and solar to deal with variability. And I think there's also some similar projects that are, that are discussed running from Australia to Singapore. I think that these projects may be very important in really managing electric decarbonization with variable renewables. And there's one particular thing I was joking before on the show that, of course, these underwater projects, on the one hand, they're more expensive than a comparable length above ground project. Uh, but but there's no uh, farmers or landholders on the bottom of the ocean. I said no Republican farm holders, but Skelly correctly pointed out to me that, in fact, the liberal ones may actually be harder to deal with. But the point is that with a line, with a linear feature, you've got to deal with expropriation or buyouts or whatever it is for every single landholder. And there's hostage taking because any landholder can argue. But but with underwater, you don't have that. And so there are interesting options for running underwater lines along continental shelves. Great. And I want to go back to something you said right at the top of that answer. You said, you know, either we need to invest in long distance transmission or we need radically cheaper storage. Why wouldn't we? And and going back to the conversation we had with Greg Nemet, I want to say a couple of years ago on how solar got cheap. Why would we not be investing heavily right now in short burst, like one to one power to energy batteries as a great solution, which if we do that in their deployment, I think with all the complexity around long distance transmission that Skelly is dealing with on a day-to-day basis, wouldn't that obviate a lot of that complexity and 
wow. we can predict now with solar and you yourself have talked about it that its cheapness has exceeded even your wildest exp uh, expectations going back 15 years ago why wouldn't we not just hammer on storage I think the, this is what is, in fact, is happening. There's a lot of emphasis going on storage because storage, you can put incentives in and people can build local storage in a way that's harder. Don't need to tell our guests this. Uh, it's harder to build transmission. But I think a reality of the current energy system is storage is still expensive enough that if you're talking, trying to do really longer term storage with batteries, it's just very expensive. And it may be that we never really get there with batteries. So right now, there's all these incentives. We are building battery storage, but not enough transmission is getting built, despite the fact that on a technical basis, transmission is actually relatively cheap and cost-effective. So if you were, I guess I'm saying that in a too complicated way, if there was no politics and you were commanded to do cost-effective decarbonization, you'd put a lot more money into transmission now than you would into storage. But because the politics is so hard, we are, if you like, over-investing in storage and under-investing in transmission. I believe that's a fair statement. Okay. I, I, I agree. That's a fair statement. And let's go back to Skelly because in order to develop transmission, really you need you need patient capital. Like these aren't quick projects. And maybe Skelly, you could just tell us like what's the life cycle of a pro of uh, an intertie long distance transmission project from inception through to completion. And maybe you could also just talk about the financial backing that Grid United has, because I think you found a backer willing to put up risk capital that a commercial player typically doesn't have that allows you to make bets on real long-term plays? Yeah. So I, I don't I don't actually know the, the Canadian answer to that question, but I'll tell you, you know, in terms of backing and so on, or how long it takes to do projects. But y'all have actually done a lot of big north-south transmission lines that are that use some innovative regulatory schemes in terms of making sure there's a competitive process to to build it, et cetera. So, but it, here in the U.S., the in our case, so we're backed by a ultra high net worth individual, and that's not uncommon in transmission, oddly enough. So, Sanzia in its original days was backed basically by a guy who owned a construction company, um, and that's a big three gigawatt line from New Mexico almost to Southern California. Uh, I mentioned Transwest Express, which was backed by a guy named Phil Anschutz, who personally has written several hundred million dollars in checks. So what we haven't seen is like it the the timeline is too long for private equity and for infrastructure funds. So I mean for the most part. So we've we've seen projects that are more like it almost like high net worth folks back in these, which is I mean it's certainly makes our jobs, our lives less complicated, but it may not be the right answer for the you know big grid that we need for the future. Sure. When you said ultra high net worth individuals backing transmission projects is not uncommon, I must admit <laughs> that surprised <laughs> me. I thought well, ultra I mean, high net worth individuals would be spending the money elsewhere investing. It's well, it's actually very very uncommon, but it has happened in a number in a material number of the cases where projects are getting developed. So, not many projects, but backed often by ultra high net worth folks. How about that? Interesting. Okay. We're about to get to Q&A, but uh, back to Sarah. 
Yeah, I just, I, I feel like this part of the conversation deserves a little bit more discussion because I think I find it just so interesting in terms of, you know, what it might be saying. As you're saying, it's not, I guess, I hear you're saying not all high worth, high net worth individuals are about outbuying transmission lines. Um, but, but the fact that so many of the transmission lines that get built are backed with this kind of patient capital that is, and I think patient capital is a fair word. It's not necessarily, if I understand correctly, people are doing it, you know, in a philanthropic manner. They're still trying to and, and making money off of it when they get built, but they're able to take that longer term perspective. And I think that has a lot to teach us about, you know, what some of the kind of capital we need coming into the energy transition space more generally. Um, again, not probably for all types of infrastructure that needs to get built. And as David said, when we think about building, say, storage alongside renewable energy infrastructure, places that you can do things more quickly, that becomes less important. But, but the fact that, you know, a lot of the tools that we have for raising capital in our systems are not sufficient. I just think that there's, you know, there, again, that there can be a role for government then to come in and provide some of that patient capital as well, too. And I think the U.S. has done that well in the in the form of things like, you know, loan guarantees doesn't necessarily work in in all cases. I think it also has some interesting lessons really for, you know, where philanthropy can make a big difference and, and kind of how um, people that are interested in, you know, putting their money in this space can have an impact as well, too. But I do. I also think it just turns a little bit on its head the notion that you know the market will simply solve this all for us, and we can just step back and let that happen. I guess unless you call you know the high net worth individuals part of the market, and, and maybe they are. But but there's. I just think that it's worth underlying that point. I find it really really interesting. Yeah. So if I could just add to that, I mean, one of the things happening in the U.S. and this was happening pre-IRA and pre-infrastructure bill, there's a lot of people trying a lot of different things, okay? And they're backed, some of them are backed by, you know, infrastructure funds and some by private equity and some by high net worth folks and some by just scrappy entrepreneurs. Like, that's the cool thing about this particular moment. People ask me all the time about like, what do you think about this technology or this technology or this idea or that other? I'm like, like, my new answer is, I don't, I mean, I've often said I don't know, but now I, I I will say, look, it's great. Everybody's trying everything, and that's fantastic. And it's that's happening on geothermal. It's happening on CCS. It's happening on nuclear, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we don't know. We know we can't do all this with one thing. We need lots of stuff, but it's heartening that we're trying all kinds of different things. So there's a great competition of ideas happening. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, let's. Uh, thanks. Let's turn to uh, questions now. So, Karen Spencer, you've got a question for uh, our group. Um, yeah. Thanks very much. Um, so, just thinking about the different regions and jurisdictions, and I'm wondering. Uh, lots of folks mentioned different politics and policies in the different areas, and you know, not to mention matching technologies or different technologies. And so I, the one thought I had was, how do we value the control aspect of these interties to, you know, potentially cheaper green power from the U.S. versus being in control of our own renewables pr produced up here? And and David, I think you actually partially answered my question already, where I, I was picturing we're at the end of an intertie and we we are totally reliant, whereas your description is more of a web where there's um numerous uh, power generation sources within our re regions as well. They just look different. 
from the, the ones that are down south. Maybe I'll jump in because I heard my name just for a second. I think it's important to think about not just about the general idea of connections, but about why the connections. So on Alberta, BC, there's a particular reason because Alberta has very little hydro, but great wind and solar resources. BC has relatively more expensive uh, to develop wind and solar, but a huge amount of hydro. So it's just obvious that there ought to be a deal in terms of kind of cost effectiveness. The issue is how to make it happen politically. Sarah, any comment just around the line, the intertie between uh, Alberta and Montana? And I think Alberta, if I'm correct, has been actually curtailing use of that intertie uh, recently. Yeah. So a couple couple of thoughts. I mean, I think that the you know that there's a broader point underneath this question, which is really about in general this concept of like energy independence and relying on other places. Um, and to me, it comes back to to a couple of things. So I mean, one is one is the fact that you know Canada and the U.S. and the world, really, frankly, has for the last you know I would argue. Since, certainly since the 70s, probably before, spent a lot of money and diplomacy and all kinds of things on creating energy independence through, you know, an increasingly globalized energy market. Um, and I think the energy market is not, not insulated from general trends when we think about globalization and, and the idea that we're right now at a time period where people are stepping back away, maybe to some extent from, from the same kind of, you know, push for globalization a little bit more towards, you know, these things like friend shoring and things like that. Um, and so I do think there is, you know, there, there's reasons to think about security, energy security and security of supply. And, and can you go too far in trying to, you know, create big networks that, that then if you're missing a piece that becomes problematic, you know, taken down to the very uh, local level, when you talk about the idea of Alberta, you know, having this network with uh, BC or even with Montana and, and similarly within the US, you know, I tend to think that if we are going to exist as a province within the country of Canada, and we can't, you know, rely on on the province of BC from a political standpoint to, you know, be a trading partner with us. Then we probably have some some more serious problems that we need to work out. So, so I don't think that the, you know, kind of political certainty or, or risk is, you know, should be at least one of the the main issues. Some of what ha- what's happening with the Montana tie line, I believe, is some some uh, th- there's some correlation between basically some of the interconnections that we have existing interconnections that we have from Alberta to the different jurisdictions. And so again, there's some you know, technical issues that, that could be remedied to allow for more use of, of that interconnection as well too. Um, so there's some ways that you know, that can be addressed sort of within the system, which, which actually, you know, just to throw this in there as well, we haven't really talked about this, but aside from just building out um, more, more inner ties and more transmission, there's also really interesting efforts going on around trying to make better use of what we have, right? And doing that through both better planning um, and better integration, not just of the systems themselves, but actually of the planning of the systems, as well as, you know, what I would call smarter things like dynamic line ratings that really take into account how much um, electricity can be sent on a line based on, you know, how hot or cold it is outside and the fact that that changes. So we do have some latent capacity in our system that's, you know, not being used and people are starting to, to, you know, tap into that more, but I think there's more that can be done there too. And if I can hearken back to that conversation we had at the Solar Alberta conference when David, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, inflame the audience, a good chunk of the audience. And these are people, Solar Alberta, who get up and they 
turn wrenches. They're the ones who are actually building a rooftop solar and utility scale solar. When David said, well, let's just tie into a high voltage DC line with cheap solar power coming from Arizona. And David, if I recall, you said, listen, my job is to advise people on sort of economic and and GHT efficiency. And and that's arguably the, the more efficient route to take. Now, we talked about security issues, but given how interlinked Canada and the US are, it's hard to imagine an event whereby the US would, you know, close the line and stop electrons from flowing up or we stop electrons from flowing down south, even under a Trump administration. But there are other public public policy objectives. And frankly, what it came down in the Solar Alberta conference was if you're a politician, you want to be cutting ribbons. You want to be creating economic activity. And by investing in renewable electricity generation here, when we're not in a moratorium, I will say, and developing new projects, then you get that economic activity, far more economic activity here than you would just by importing that electricity from elsewhere. Well, you, you yes, politicians are incentive in democracy to cut ribbons, but they also ought to be, we hope, incentive in democracies to actually do the economically effective thing that drive long-term growth because there's lots of ribbon cutting or local pork that we all know politicians do that are actually not effective. And I think the point is that if you really want large-scale decarbonization, it is correct that it you'd probably want to install a lot more solar way down south in Arizona where capacity factors are a lot higher and, and strengthen the grid. And that also gets the trade-offs you see inside Alberta between the fact that people like to see local solar, like people want to see that where we live in Canmore, Ed, but it in fact is much more effective to build solar as you were involved in some way in developing that big uh, solar project in Southern Alberta, it's much more effective to build the big project in Southern Alberta because it's less capital per, per unit of capacity and also less operating in terms of cleaning and managing per unit of capacity. And the transmission system is good. So, you know, wise politicians ought to tell people when they're wasting their money by building a whole bunch of small solar that's not effective. We should allow people to do it, but we shouldn't promote it. Great segue into our next question. Jim McPhail, please uh, go ahead and ask your question. Thanks, folks. Again, Hello again today. My question, I think, is down the road because so far it's not sort of uh, renewables versus fossil fuel isn't all won by the renewables yet. But my question does come between looking at your district uh, centers, uh, your district energy centers with local transmission versus the large-scale ones over a shared distance. And I'm thinking that the local ones, once we actually have enough of the uh, renewables, would be cheaper because they don't have to try to keep a certain base going the way the larger ones do, not near so much an amount. Uh, they're more flexible in terms of being able to add to uh, what they would have for their infrastructure. They're not tied into necessarily long contracts like uh, the way the current... Uh, fossil fuel power plants are and so on. But so I think a lot of what you've been discussing today, I, I love what I'm hearing in terms of your your details, but I think a lot of it just at this point, we don't have enough renewables to say, well, I, David, you're talking about some major centers down in say Arizona and it's like, but we don't have enough of those types of things all over the place to make my question really that relevant. So I tossed it in early. So it's maybe it's a bit of a red herring right now. 
I'm happy to take a stab, though, at kind of this question of, you know, whether mm -hmm. utility scale or, or district or, you know, more local generation. And I think the answer to that is, is you know, yes, and or both, right? And it's not, um, you know, if you were, again, back to kind of David's point of how do you design the, the most cost-effective system, it's usually not going to be exclusively one or the other. And it's, so how do you have the rules that enable really both to happen? And I think too often we do hear this idea of people sort of arguing, well, this one is better and cheaper because X, when the reality is, is that it's a, it's a mix of the two. And I think that's an you know, important point to make. Yep. And as I've said before on the show, there's different, it's very scale dependent. So solar on big uh, flat roofs of big industrial facilities can be quite economically effective, whereas solar in an individual house typically less so. Okay, I'm going to bring Skelly back in. And uh, another question from Mark Lacromp. Uh, how does the grid integration in North America compare to the integration in the European Union? Yeah, so um, let me go back to the previous question real quick. So just to point you all to a study that, that a company called Grid Strategies did, which was compared like these two scenarios of lots of sort of distributed solar in the Southeast. This is looking at the Eastern interconnect in the U.S., lots of sort of decentralized solar versus more utility scale. And you actually end up needing some more types of grid. So a big grid gives you options on lots of things. And then to, to your question about like, how does grid integration North America? So I don't know actually like the average electron, how far it goes in Europe versus the U.S. But and so I think about it more in sort of the velocity of change. And pretty clearly, the velocity of change is higher in Europe, and they're doing a lot more sort of grid-to-grid -grid projects and trying things, trying to connect grids to get, and, and maybe it's because they're further along in this energy transition process than we are. And I think there's greater consensus around where to go in energy, so that enables more things to happen. And a continental uh, war, Skelly, that has people wanting to get off Russian gas used to generate electricity. That is a big, big boost right now. It's always been a European interest in, in sort of wind and solar has always been driven by the combo of climate and energy security. And energy security has really come to the forefront, as you all know. Got you. David and Sarah, any comment? Yeah, I've been trying to think about answering the question of of the relative integration because I saw the question online. I don't have an easy way to answer it. They're different. North America has a lot of long distance transmission. I don't think there's a simple answer. Sarah, do you have one? I yeah, I don't. I mean, I think that there are some ways in which Europe is better connected when it comes to the resource mix. Um, mix is being better balanced maybe than what we have in the U.S. right now. But that's probably a, a topic for a whole other show to be able to say more about that. Bidding words to end on, a preview of another possible show. So uh, we're at the top of the hour and let's leave it there. But uh, before closing credits, just a big thank you to Skelly. Uh, we know how busy you are uh, with Grid United, everything that you're involved in. So we're really grateful that you carved out some time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great, great discussion. Thank you all. Thanks, everyone. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Energy versus Climate. The show is created by David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and me, Ed Whittingham, and produced by Eva Voinicescu, with help from Crystal Hickey, Serena Gibson, and Talia Grunau. Our title and show music is The Wind-Up by Brian Lips. 
This season of Energy versus Climate is produced with support from the University of Calgary's Office of the Vice President, Research, and the University's Global Research Initiative. Further support comes from the Trache Family Foundation, the North Family Foundation, and you, our generous listeners. Sign up for updates and exclusive webinar access at energyversusclimate.com and review and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. This helps new listeners to find the show. We'll be back live and in person at the Building for Sustainability Conference in Canmore on November 5th. A pod version of the show will be available shortly afterwards. We hope to see you then. Thank you.